0: So depending on what your goal is, is going to influence a a lot of the decisions that you make uh, when choosing what cover crop species, when to plant it, uh, and and how you're going to manage that uh, cover crop. So once you've got a goal, I think the next thing you've got to find is your window.
1: Hello, I'm Ken Coles, General Manager of Farming Smarter, and today our guest is Dr. Yvonne Lolly from the University of Manitoba. Hello. Hi, Ken. Thanks so much for coming. Um, We were very fortunate to have you on our tour yesterday and uh, sharing all your knowledge about cover crops. So I thought maybe we could start off with just a little bit of information about yourself and what you do in Manitoba and why you are working on cover crops with us.
0: Sure, Ken. So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba, and I work on agronomy and cropping systems, and a lot of my work uh, at the University of Manitoba has focused on agronomy for new crops like soybeans and corn. Before coming to the University of Manitoba, a lot of my research had focused on cover crops, and I'm excited um, to be working on cover crops in Manitoba and across the prairies with our new prairie-wide project on uh, looking at cover crops and prairie cropping systems.
1: That's excellent. So are cover crops new? Is this, is this a new idea or is this something that's been around for a long time?
0: It. I think it's very much a case of what's old is new again. Yeah. Uh, the last time that we were talking about cover crops in a big way on the prairies was at a time when we were looking for ways to replace fallow and prairie cropping systems. So that's been quite a while ago. Um And so those green fallow crops were a way to cover the soil, um, but not use too much water. Now we're talking about cover crops in a slightly different uh, way. We're still trying to intensify our cropping systems and our crop rotations, but instead of looking at, you know, replacing a full season of fallow, we're trying to focus on growing plants for a longer portion of our growing season. So looking at those fallow periods in the early spring and in the fall after our annual crops have been
1: harvested. That's pretty cool. Does that mean there's there's no fallow left in Manitoba? I think we have a little bit here in Alberta.
0: <laughs> well, certainly where I'm in Manitoba, I don't think farmers plan for fallow. Mm-hmm. It's more when you have um, uh, extreme weather events, extreme dry or extreme wet. There we have some fallow in Manitoba.
1: Yeah, we we get that from time to time, too. There's never a normal year when it comes to weather in in southern Alberta. And actually, that's an interesting point is, can you be adaptive when it comes to cover cropping? Or is this this something that you have to have a a regiment to?
0: Well, when I talk about cover crops, or when I think about cover crops, I like to think about um, playing a game of cards and that you're... uh, reacting to the hand that you've been dealt as opposed to having a recipe book and here is my formula for having a successful cover crop. So I do think you do need to be adaptive. That being said being adaptive is different than being last minute and not planning. Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to have success with cover crops especially on the prairies you've got a plan and you've got to have plan A and you've got to pl- have plan B because like you said we've got different weather conditions and so, your window may shift uh, for establishing cover crops, or your decisions about how to manage that cover crop is going to be influenced by the weather that you have in any given year, or the conditions in any individual field.
1: So, when I think of cover crops, often I think about organic farms and mm-hmm. um, other other situations like that. Not n- maybe even more on the forage side of things too, but you're you're more focused on. How do we integrate this into mainstream crop production? Is that right?
0: I think right now on the prairies, organic farmers and farmers who have livestock and are planting annual forage crops are probably our farmers that have the most experience with cover crops right now. And I think for me as a researcher, the challenge that I see is how to fit them into, for example, an annual grain farm where you may not have that incentive or that economic payoff like for organic farmers they're growing those cover crops because they need to cycle nutrients or manage weeds and with those mixed farms that have livestock they can recoup investment in that seed from uh from as a a forage source for those livestock and I think you know in a mixed system cover crops make so much sense uh it helps um balance pressure on the native range or the tame forages that you have by strategizing, blending in these annual forages. Um, It also makes sense in their crop fields uh, to be able to get some of the benefits that we'll talk about from cover crops. In annual grain farms, there we've got to start thinking about the value of plants as a way to manage soil. So you know, we're fairly experienced at thinking about their return on investment from fungicide application or herbicide use, or even, you know, buying a new tillage implement. You can think about, you know, what is, what is the gain that I'm going to have in efficiency? I don't think we spent a lot of time thinking about how plants, how we can use plants to manage soil or set up conditions for our subsequent crops. And that's the exciting part about doing this research.
1: So it doesn't have to be necessarily an organic practice. And I think there's a bit of almost a bit of a stigma against cover crops um, for that reason. I mean, we're pretty busy on our farms and we we need to make sure that the the bills are being paid. But at the same time, I think there's a growing trend on interest in soil health and, and interest in cover crops and intercrops and all that sort of thing. It's just how do you really mix that into the more standard large scale farm?
0: I think if we look across what's happened in the U.S. Midwest, um, I, for me, that's what I see happening in, on the prairies in the next decade, mm-hmm. where we might start to disassociate the use of cover crops from strictly organic farms or strictly mixed livestock. And if we also look to our neighbors further south, um, where uh, the focus has been on soil health and ways to intensify our crop production practices, to find room and ways to build soil health. I think those are some of the trends that I see for our future on the prairies.
1: Sounds good. And I think yesterday you talked about sort of what are your goals that you're hoping to achieve with cover crops and with that, how do you evaluate it? And I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit, but also specifically how can we measure some of those intangibles and and maybe hopefully prove to farmers that it's either worthwhile or, or partially worthwhile kind of that, that that approach
0: yeah those are great questions um so let's start with uh you know how do you set yourself up for success so thinking through a plan um and that's where I think the most important thing to start with is what is the goal and why am I growing cover crops Um, and I think we have a real range of goals because, you know, every farm is unique. Every farm has its own suite of crops, its own suite of, uh, you know, seeders or tillage equipment that they're, that they're running. Um, and so your goal, you are as a farmer or, or as an agronomist working with a farmer, you need to really, uh, articulate what your goal is. And some of the most common goals that I can think of across the prairies might be related to soil cover and thinking about erosion, either due to wind or due to water. If I think about Manitoba right now, um, we've had a couple years of fairly open winters where we've seen a lot of soil blowing, not necessarily in uh, in the fall as we often think about it when we're in areas where we do a lot of conventional tillage in Manitoba, but it's been rather a lot of soil erosion that we see or wind erosion that we see in the early spring. So in late March and early April, when we've had a lot of blowing winds. So uh, cover crops can be a way to either have living cover um, to protect those soils when they're vulnerable in that very early spring period, or to grow the residue that we're going to need to have it in place to protect those soils um, in that spring. So soil cover, I think, for either water or wind erosion is a a really great goal. Uh, Another goal that uh, I think is pretty common across the prairies is wanting to increase soil organic matter. And, uh, you know, we have had um, adoption of no-till, and so that has helped um, either increase or at least conserve the organic matter in our soils. Um, but even within conventional tillage systems, just by having plants growing in those shoulder periods of, of, our, of our growing season, we can uh, feed um, and provide, we can provide more uh, biomass from plants and more plant roots that can help contribute to organic matter. And we can also provide food for the organisms that are living in our soils that help cycle organic matter and build that organic matter. So building organic matter might be uh, another really important goal. Another goal that I can think about um, is trying to improve uh, aggregation and structure in the soil. So just by having living roots growing in the soil, those roots um, anchor soil and they also, um, the plants will exude compounds that attract Uh, microorganisms to them both the plant roots themselves and then those organisms that they attract can also help cement soil particles together to build healthy aggregates in the soil that create really important spaces in the soil Uh, poor spaces are so important and root channels are so important that allows oxygen and water to move through the soil um, which is good for those organisms that we want to cycle nutrients and it's also good for infiltration of water and movement of water within soil. So, those are three goals um, that I can think about. Other really common goals are to suppress weeds as we have more herbicide resistant weeds. Uh, I can see cover crops being a tool uh, to help us manage weeds. Um, salinity management is also really important in certain areas of the prairies. If you don't want to commit to Uh, perennial forages as a long-term strategy for managing salinity. Or maybe you just have areas of salinity uh, around a a really saline area or a slough um, that you can't plant because they're too wet when you're planting the rest of the field. Just going in and planting those areas to some kind of cover or other annual cover crop, you can really help manage uh, salinity in your fields. So salinity management might be another uh, goal. There are many different goals for cover crops, and that's why it's so important to know what your goal is. You know, maybe your goal is you just want to add more nitrogen to your soil, and so you want to capture, you know, grow legumes to try and increase uh, nitrogen available to subsequent crops. So depending on what your goal is, is going to influence a, a lot of the decisions that you make uh, when choosing what cover crop species, when to plant it, uh, and and how you're going to manage that uh, cover crop. So once you've got a goal, I think the next thing you've got to find is your window. And uh, you know on the prairies, I think that's what I hear a lot of farmers say is you know we just don't have the time or the water uh, to make this fit into my rotation and, uh, and it's interesting because you know I've worked on um, I've worked as a researcher with cover crops in, the U S and in Canada and everywhere I've worked farmers say we don't have time or space for this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because, you know, everywhere, no matter where you're growing, you're trying to maximize, uh, the growing season that you have. So you're growing the the variety or the the varieties and the plant types that, that suit your growing season. Um, but the reality is if we're creative, there are ways to integrate, uh, cover crops into those shoulder seasons, no matter where you are. Mm
1: -hmm. I think that's probably a problem with the scale of agriculture now too, is Mm -hmm. you're so, you know, busy taking what crop you have off in the first place is how can you even think about trying to add more into that? I mean, even in trying to expand winter wheat acres, Mm -hmm. that's still one of the biggest uh, concerns is, is how do I find time to get the crop off and then seed another one in the fall so I think that maybe those same types of problems are probably going to be uh, a barrier for cover crop uh, adoption as well. I
0: think that's a real challenge, in particular thinking about, you know, the expansion that farm <coughs> size has had on Western Canada. That's definitely uh, something that is probably unique about yeah. a challenge for cover crop adoption uh, on the prairies. I think we've got to be creative there and... Um, and I think we also have to develop prairie-specific solutions that are going to work for us on the mm-hmm. scale of agriculture that we practice, and the timings of harvest <coughs> and timing with the environment that we have.
1: So get creative, like uh, seeding cover crops behind the combine or something like mm-hmm. right on there. Or yeah, and
0: something there are many about. different seeding strategies. So you could be, you know, interseeding cover crops. Uh, when I think about Manitoba, I think we get. Um, some timely rains in June uh, and July that may allow us to establish cover crops. Maybe in other places you don't get those rains, so looking at <laughs> strategies that might involve more intercropping so that yeah. when you take your your main cash crop off, the cover crop is established and living under that canopy.
1: Yeah. I think you hit on some pretty interesting points there as far as the goals are concerned. And to recap quickly, you said um, erosion control, wind or water. I mean, that's something that's pretty easy to see and, and, and measure. And you said organic matter. Wh- why do people want more organic matter? Like, I know it seems like a dumb question, but
0: yeah, like stating the obvious, Like
1: wh- why do you want more organic matter? And, and what's the point and how do you measure that? And some, uh, we'll move on to the next after that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we're starting to talk about, you know, how do we evaluate success? Right. And, uh, So, you know, for me, sometimes in my research, just getting the cover crop established is -hmm. success in and of itself. So you can see those sort of short-term measures. If you're talking about ground cover, you can measure or visually rate how much ground cover you have. Um, But then, you know, some of those more intangibles, especially related to soil health, is where we start to have challenges. And, you know, our, our knowledge and interest in soil health is growing at the same time as the tools to measure the benefits to soil health. So, you know, I would say the, you know, the farmer or the practicing agronomist right now has a fairly limited toolkit to assess soil health compared to, uh, you know, th- what the tools that we have for measuring, uh, you know, nutrient fertility in soils oh. or assessing, you know, what kind of pests we're dealing with. So, um so I think there's going to be a lot of change in the tools that are available in the coming decade. But what you can do here and now, uh, I, I think, again, it depends what your goal is. But if our goal is to track organic matter, you know, you can soil test for, for that. I think soil organic matter itself is going to change fairly slowly if we think about, you know, what, we, what farmers experience when adopting no-till. But there are different fractions of, of carbon in the soil, and um, there's some new tests that are being, that I'm using as a researcher and that are starting to come into commercial labs like uh, active carbon. Sometimes it's called POX C carbon, mm-hmm. which is a lighter fraction of carbon. That's uh, the first, uh, type of carbon that's broken down by soil microorganisms. So when I'm doing my research with cover crops, I'm tracking soil organic matter, but not expecting it to change. <laughs> and after, after one growing season or, um, but certainly I'm looking at the influence of cover crops and other land management practices on these lighter and more readily available sources of fraction, like active carbon. Um, other things that may be important, and like we talked about salinity, certainly following uh, salinity levels in soil um, is important, or maybe tracking um, pH if that's something that you're struggling either on the high side or on the low side. So we do have some standard soil tests right now that you can access. Um, there are labs um, in other parts of North America that you can send samples to I'd say the biggest challenge we have there with you know um, soil health tests like um, the Cornell soil health tests, which is probably one of the best soil health tests, most comprehensive ones that we have, or you know sending um, samples away for DNA analysis of microbial, um, bacterial, or fungal populations in the soil is that those soil or those tests aren't really calibrated, so you can get a number, but we don't know whether that's a low number or a high number. Whether it's or how to um, how to then take make a management decision with that number, so very similar to where we're at with um, you know some of our um, our sensors for sensing NDVI or things like that. It's hard to have calibrated results to make a management decision right. from those. So if you on your own farm or farms that you're working with have um, soils that you think are healthy or your most productive soils, or maybe you have, you know, a perennial pasture or something like that, um, you can come up with a, a check and then submit those together and, uh, and for yourself, see how they compare. You're so sort of benchmark in your own... Benchmark, yeah. yeah. And also with this sampling, you want to be careful about the time of year that you sample because, you know, we have changes... In um, many of these measures, within the growing season. So, if you are going to measure through time or between different fields, you got to collect those samples at the same
1: time of year. Mm-hmm. It seems sometimes that it's it's almost a bit of a religion in in certain camps that that it's a belief system. But we're really dealing with, with soil as a black box right now, yeah. and I think there's a really ambiguous definition of what is what is soil health. So, I think as as you know practicing science that i think that being able to prove these types of improvements in soil might help with the with the adoption and i know that that there's a bit of a difference in camps i think there's the folks that are just following it because they believe it's something positive but they don't necessarily have the scientific tools to truly measure it and and be certain that Mm -hmm. what they're doing is is making a difference and i guess the time frame really matters too time
0: frame matters um One thing I would say is, and this goes back to something I remember Martin Nance telling me when I started as a new professor, is sometimes, you know, we have to look to the plants to tell us what's going on Mm -hmm. in the system. And so, you know, we've got to use our observations of how plants are performing over time. And, you know, the benefit of being a researcher is that I get to put treatments side by side and to Mm -hmm. replicate them. I think the challenge on the farm is you know, what is your check? And so building strips or split fields, um, giving yourself a place to make comparisons is really important as you evaluate. And I think too, we got to come back to what is our goal. Um, And so, you know, if water management and increasing, uh, you know, having more water to grow more grain is important to you, you know, some simple measures like infiltration, Mm -hmm. uh, which are pretty easy to do.
1: So how about... um the soil's ability to release nutrients like nitrogen. Yeah. I know there's various other tools like the PRS probes and things mm-hmm. like that. Like, I think one thing I've noticed that over the years with the adoption of zero tillage, there has been uh, a markable improvement in soil quality. And, and oftentimes I think we're not seeing the same nitrogen response that we may be used to too. So that's a very tangible benefit to farmers if they can, say, cut back on their, their nitrogen inputs. Is that... Does that make sense as well too? or?
0: I think that you brought up a great tool, something like a PRS probe or just tracking in a plant itself, like how much nitrogen is that plant taking up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an agronomist can send plant samples away to a lab and and, and measure that uh, nutrient sufficiency and that biomass of that plant. Yeah. Uh,
1: I think I see agronomists that are really trying to ma- fine-tune their management and add value to uh, the farm so if instead of say using your sprayer to dribble band on some fertilizer in season if you had the alternative is the soil is more able to react to say more rois- more moisture and and fill that niche then mm-hmm. you know that they're, they're almost sort of like competing practices or they're different strategies they're just different strategies they're yeah. different
0: strategies and I mean, if reducing inputs is a long-term strategy that you have, then I think you've got to turn to your soil and invest in your soil. Mm-hmm. The the hard part right now is it's a bit of an intangible fuzzy number, right? Yeah. So hopefully, you know, the research that I and my colleagues do will help us on the prairies to come up with some real numbers.
1: So maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the species, and you, you mentioned sort of, the agronomy associated with, with cover crops. And I know one of the first things that jumps to mind in Southern Alberta is, you know, we're semi-arid, we're, we're sort of dealing with moisture as our limiting uh, factor more than, more than ever is, is there a potential that say cover crops might rob us of some of that moisture? Is that a, is that a legitimate concern or, or are there certain ways of uh, and choices of, of crops that we can still get away with it and, and add some benefit?
0: I don't think we have the information we need right now to say, you know, this species or that species will or will not, you know, reduce the yield of subsequent crops. So Mm -hmm. I think farmers have to be wary there and start small when they start integrating cover crops. Um, I think that um, when I think about this particular area we're at here uh, where we had our field day in Lethbridge, um, to me, this environment has... Um, moisture deficits, definitely during the growing season, but your winter period is so unique here. And so when I think about this growing environment, winter cereals seem like a really wise choice uh, Mm -hmm. as a good starting place for adapting cover crops. And, you know, I don't want to be too dogmatic here. If you can, you know, successfully establish a winter cereal and harvest grain from it, then, then I think you are achieving your goal of increasing soil cover. Right. and growing plants for a longer period of the year yeah so um, so in this period where th- in this area where we are really limited by soil moisture I think just going back to diversifying your rotation with winter cereals is a really great place to start now maybe if you are working in an irrigated system where you can add water uh, when you need it uh, getting cover crops established to try and anchor soil and and do some of the um, do some soil building in especially in with crops that maybe take a lot out of the soil or have a lot of disturbance um, to the soil, then that's another really good place to start in this area. When I think about you know Manitoba, uh, where we have more water, uh, there I think our our struggle is to think about the windows that we have and the crops that we want to complement by bringing diversity into the rotation. Um, So when I think about plant species for Manitoba, I'm definitely interested in rye Um, uh, and it would pair well with, for example, soybeans because we can let that rye overwinter and soybeans uh, being nitrogen fixing, you know, we can even direct seed into a living rye cover crop without creating, you know, immobilization of nitrogen Uh um, that's going to negatively impact that soybean crop compared to, you know, the the potential that you might have with corn. So when you're picking a species for cover crops, you really got to be thinking about, you know, my goal, my window, and how it fits into the rotation. What crop am I coming out of and what crop am I going into? Um, If I think about some other goals for cover crops, like um, uh, we talked about nitrogen fixation, legumes, you may have some trade-offs there in that legumes tend to be a little bit slower starting. So if you're interested in competing with weeds there, you've got to find uh, a cover crop that's going to be competitive. And right away, I think about, you know, some of the standard cereals that we have, and just starting with things that are simple like barley or oats, maybe mixing in a broad leaf um, or a legume. in with those kinds of cereals are, uh, are a good, easy place to start. And you can go from there with other plant species that maybe bring more diversity into your rotation. We talked about salinity management, and I've seen several demonstrations looking at different plant species and saline soils, and some of the plant species that tend to do well in, uh, in those saline environments include barley, um, camelina, sugar beets, um, and so you can bring some diversity into your rotation uh, if you have a fairly limited crop complement by, by using cover crops there.
1: So it might be a very old practice, but we have a lot to learn when it comes to cover crops.
0: We certainly do. And, you know, we can look to our neighbors to the south who have had more um, programs to incentivize adopting cover crops. But I think we also have to take what they've learned and truth it here in the prairies and tailor it to... To what we're doing and what's important to us
1: here. So maybe to wrap up on this particular cover crop project, um, where where are the locations and and how long is a trial and what are you hoping to achieve with that?
0: The with that research study? part of of this yeah. talk. All right, so I'm pretty excited to uh, be collaborating with a group of scientists, including farming smarter, um, on this prairie cover crop hypothesis project. So we're testing cover crops. In four year rotations at four locations on the prairie. So we've got Lethbridge, we've got Lana Schott, Redverse, we've got Steve Shirtliff and Kate Congreves at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. And then I'm hosting a site um, at the University of Manitoba Research Farm in Carmen, Manitoba, and at the Glenlee Research Farm. So on a medium textured soil and a heavy clay soil in Manitoba. And so we've got rotations that are tailored to each of those growing environments, and then we've got cover crops to complement those crops. We're comparing a rotation. It's a pretty simple study, really. We're comparing one rotation, one four-year rotation without cover crops to the four-year rotation with cover crops. And for many of our soil-building hypotheses that we're testing measurements we're going to do, we've got two checks. We've got a... uh, sort of the best case scenario for four, for soil building. We've got a, a four-year alfalfa stand that we're going to be com- uh, managing. And then we've got sort of the standard short-sighted money returns wheat canola rotation, which is standard across the whole region. So um, we're looking at how well those cover crops grow um, in each of those windows and each of those crops in every year. So by the end of the four years, we should have some good data on how successfully those cover crops establish um, and whether they impact or have a negative impact on, on yields of the annual grain crops. And we're hoping to do uh, a real diversity of measurements in this experiment. Um, we are going to be, you know, looking at, you know, how crop performance. We're going to be looking at cover crop performance in terms of just how much biomass there and what is the quality of that biomass. So looking at the amount of nitrogen and the amount of carbon for immobilization, carbon-to-nitrogen ratio. We're also going to be looking at, you know, a suite of soil measures. So I'm going to be working with a student on some of the soil physical properties like um, infiltration, bulk density, um, and some of the microbial properties with Melissa Arcand at the U of S who's going to be looking at enzymes in soils, um, PLFA which is phospholipid fatty acids so looking at uh, microbes that way and then Kate Congreaves is going to be looking at the Cornell soil health test and um, looking at whether that test is able to detect differences between our treatments. Kate's also got a, a side project to be looking in detail on nitrogen cycling carbon cycling and then also connecting it all the way to nitrous oxides with uh Mario Tenuta, and Rich Farrell. And we're going to be looking at two different types of cover crops there in particular. So we've got rye as one of our cover crop treatments, and that one over winters. And we're going to be testing our hypothesis that maybe that rye takes up that nitrogen early in the season. And so maybe it's not going to be um, lost as greenhouse gases compared to either no cover crop, or we'll also be comparing that to cover crops like oats, um, or peas that, that winter kill. And so, um, we have a diverse team of people to work together, which is really exciting in four very different parts of the prairies. And we're going to be learning as much as we can through these different measurements. Now, pairing with this, um, uh, research study on, in, on research stations, We've also got some on-farm trials that are going to be happening in Manitoba where we've got farmers who are going to be establishing um, uh, uh, strips of cover crops and maintaining those areas of the field. So where they can in their rotation, they will include cover crops. So I'm really excited to see how the detailed small plot work we do compares to the on-farm testing, at least in Manitoba.
1: Sounds great. And we're, we're very happy to be part of the study. And I know a lot of people will be following the progress of the study and appreciate you coming down. And we'll have to have you on again t- another time <laughs> to, right. to, to discuss some of all of the other findings and, and also some of your other yeah. research, too. So,
0: Well, if people are interested in following the study, um, we have uh, the Prairie Cover Crops hashtag and you can follow me, Yvonne Lolly, on uh, Twitter.
1: Excellent. We'll be sure to sign that up. Great. Take care.